here. Okay, sweet. Yep, we're live. Uh, so welcome to Talking Christianity, everybody. Um, today we are doing um, a debate with myself and Louis Dizon on the doctrine of justification. Louis Dizon, he's got a, a bit of a unique story, um, or rather a, a story that is becoming more pop, more common, more popular, of uh, uh, once Protestant converting to Catholicism. And I'm going to ask him to share a little bit about his story before we start the debate in that area. Uh, but you'll get the Catholic view of the doctrine and justification and then the non-Catholic view of the doctrine and justification from my perspective. And uh, we're going to go ahead and get into it and kind of give you an idea on what to expect um, for the structure and that side of the conversation as well. So stay tuned. Hi. Am I on? Sure oh, just a sec. I'm playing my intro video. Sorry. That you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks. That one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friend, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. To what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them, and they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Okay, so uh, welcome back, and I uh, just want to give you guys an update on what it is we're going to be talking about. It's going to be a, a debate on the doctrine of justification between myself, the non-Catholic, and and uh, Lewis dies on the Catholic view. Uh, but before we do that, I do want to do some introductions, just kind of let you know who Lewis is, what his story is, and go from there. So, uh, Lewis, welcome to Talking Christianity. It's good to have you on, man. Hey, it's great to be here. So, yeah, I've done debates before, but this is the first time I'm doing one specifically on a Catholic versus Protestant issue. Um, as you may have alluded already, I was at one point a Reformed Protestant. And in fact, for like a good nine and a half years of my life, I was a member of a Reformed Baptist church. But as I delved into more um, theology and biblical studies, I found that the Catholic um, interpretation of scripture as well as of um, church history was far more compelling, so I, you know, eventually accepted that, and I you know, uh, returned to the church. And this was about a little over a year ago, and there are a lot of people in the reform camp who are still uh, upset at me for having done that. But um, as we've had more time to actually discuss um, differences and similarities, we found that. You know, the you know apart from the polemics that get thrown around, it's a lot. You know, the issues are a lot more complicated than they first appear to be. Uh, which hopefully, when I get into my presentation, um, 
can show why I think that is the case. Um, so a little bit about me, I'm a PhD student at the University of Toronto. My program is called Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations and my focus is really on comparing Abrahamic religions. So I do a lot of research on Christian versus Muslim polemics. Uh, do a little bit of Judaism on the side as well because knowing the Jewish background for like uh, the Bible is important for understanding it. And like not directly related to that, I'm also interested in knowing about comparative theologies within Christianity. Um, and I'm going to talk more about like different denominational views on soteriology as I give my presentation later. But I like to know what all of the different viewpoints are on a matter so that, you know, you're not just doing, you're not just in an echo chamber hearing one view and then all the rest are just caricatures, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Um, so, okay, so we've, we've got a little bit about who you are, uh, what you're doing in life today. I mean, you're a PhD student. What is it that you are doing your dissertation on? Um, it's <clears throat> like, I'm at the stage where I'm still like solidifying what it's exactly going to be about, but I'm interested in some of the medieval um, Muslim polemics against Christianity because uh, people who know me know that I'm big on Christian Muslim debate. I've done multiple debates with Muslim apologists in the past and some of the arguments that they bring out are not new. In fact, uh, there are certain polemicists from the Middle Ages who more or less gave the exact arguments that they're presenting now. So I'm looking yeah. into some of those medieval writings uh, to see how those um, arguments have developed and how um, you know, their approach contrasts with certain other approaches uh, that other Muslims take towards Christianity and the Bible. Yeah. Um, and all of that is for an apologetic application because I want to be able to present the reliability of Christianity and the Bible uh, yeah. to an increasingly, um, you know, a growing Muslim presence here in the West. Yep. Yeah, that's that's uh, definitely some a, a concern. Um, I think that that Christians should have um, is is not just what what um, Islam teaches, um, but that it it's it's a mission field, man. I mean, at the end of the day, they need Jesus. They need to understand who Jesus is and um, what what exactly he's done for them, which is kind of going to be a transition into what we're talking about today. We both believe in Jesus. There's a lot of things that we have in common. Um, but we do have some differences, and I think this is uh, this is one of those those topics of um, um, contention that I, I think at the end of the day we'll be able to understand a little bit more clearly what those differences are and why um, why they're important. But before we do, before we get into that, I want to give you the structure for what the debate is going to look like. Um, but the whole reason this is happening today, I think, is uh, because of a guy named Ron on Twitter. I do want to give Ron, I do want to give you a little bit of a shout-out, man. This wouldn't be happening right now if, uh, if, if it wasn't for you. Um, by the way, Lewis, Ron tells me uh, that you're going to set me straight. You're going to bring me across the Tiber and uh, that we'll end up on the same side at the end of this, which I, I, I don't believe that's going to happen, but um, I, I, I think that... Um, it's, it's a good conversation to have, but um, anyways, I, that's kind of how this, how this was able to happen, and um, I'm looking forward to it. But one thing I did want to ask you is I, I heard, 
I don't I don't know who I heard this from, but I heard um, that you were supposed to be the next James White of the Reformedom. Is that right? Oh goodness, that was <laughs> like a trope that um, was being thrown around right towards the um, you know the latter stage of my being Calvinist because it's actually a matter of fact that um, I was heavily into Alpha and Omega Ministries. I watched a ton of James White's debates and I read like more of his books that I can remember and I hundreds of hours worth of the Dividing Light podcast. I've even done the same thing he's done of like listening to audio while biking around my neighborhood. Um, so you can say that he was a huge influence um, in my theological formation. Um, ironically though, um, that did end up uh, undoing my uh, reformedness because I listened to every single one of his Catholic Protestant debates. Yeah. And um, at the end of having listened to all of them, I came to the conclusion that his Catholic opponents had the better argument. <clears throat> yeah. Um, okay, so now I, I would ask, um, I would ask if you took it as a compliment, but I, I just kind of heard um, what your take was on uh, on kind of where the arguments led. So um, I won't get into that, but uh, just for the sake of the live viewers as well, just kind of transition to the next point of the conversation. I, I do want to tell you that we do have uh, the opportunity for you to call in if you would like to. Um, we'll open it up to questions for a short time and uh, call in with your questions. The number is going to be 816-866-0025 uh, or you can just type in your question into whatever social platform that you're watching from and I should be able to get those here. Uh, if you call in and the line's full, just leave a voicemail or, or you can hang up and call back and we'll get your message that way. So I would also encourage you to rate us um, on whatever podcasting platform it is that you're you're listening to or viewing from. You can leave a review as well. That'd be great. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure and subscribe and share the link as well. I can't tell you how many times uh, people will message me when I say, hey, we're, we're doing a debate this date. And somebody will say, well, what, you got a link? You know, it's like, well, if you subscribe, you'll, you can get a notification for that. And uh, it's just a lot easier that way. Um, although it does show when we go live as well. So anyways, if you're on Facebook, I'd also encourage you, um, if you would like to, start your own watch party live or share the link in your timeline or to a group uh, you think would find this particular subject interesting. So, all right, well, let's go ahead and, and give the debate structure. I'm going to put this up on the screen so you can see this for those who are, are viewing live uh, as well. Let me see... Where is it? Where? Oh, there it is. Um, yeah, you should be able to see that there on the screen. So we're going to do 25 minutes each to lay out our positions and address supposed issues with the opposing view. Uh, Lewis is going to go first. I'll follow up from him uh, on that side of the conversation. Then we'll do 10 minutes of cross-examination each after we do our introductions. Uh, same order there. We'll, tr we'll do five-minute rebuttals each, then seven-minute open dialogue, and uh, three-minute closing statements. So it should be about an hour and a half total. And Lewis is going to go first, so why don't we uh, go ahead and jump into it. I'm going to put a timer up on the screen. All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make an explanation of the view on justification. Uh, in the process, I'm going to make note of differences and similarities with various Protestant views. Um, I want to just begin by saying that when we discuss justification, um, 
we should avoid making more differences that are actually necessary. Um, what I mean is that if there are any similarities in viewpoint, we should affirm those. In fact, um, as I was researching this issue through the, over the past two years, one of my major discoveries was that uh, there are many ideas that I thought were once distinct to Catholicism, which were actually held by uh, Lutheran and Reformed theologians. Uh, for example, there were some Lutheran theologians throughout history that actually did say that our final salvation was dependent on our works. That's something that I'm going to uh, delve into uh, further down. Um, it's also important to make note of distinctions that are made in theology. Um, systematic theology is all about making distinctions, and unfortunately, sometimes details get lost because people aren't paying attention to them. For example, um, Catholics actually have no problem using the term faith alone when it's in reference to initial justification. It's subsequent to that initial justification that works come into play, as we'll see later. And the same can be said about grace alone. Strictly speaking, nobody disputes that salvation is by grace alone. I remember uh, R.C. Sproul in one of his Ligonier talks saying that Catholics deny sola gratia, which is strictly not true. What we do differ on is how grace operates. And Catholics, and for that matter, Lutherans and Anglicans, believe that grace is conferred through sacraments. Catholics also believe, as do Wesleyan Arminian Protestants, that we must cooperate with God's grace for it to be efficacious in our lives. So a Reformed person might see all of this as a denial of sola gratia, but we would not see it as such. Now, let's go into some of those points of commonality that I alluded to at the beginning. First of all, there's the fact that initial justification is attained through grace alone. The Council of Trent in its session on justification actually says this in chapter 8, but we are therefore said to be justified freely because none of those things which precede justification, whether faith or works, merit the grace itself of justification. For it be a grace, it is, uh, if it be a grace, it is not now works. Otherwise, as the same apostle says, grace is no more grace, unquote. Um, it's also a fact that our initial attainment of justification is not by works. So Canon 1 of the same chapter of Trent says, if anyone says that man may be justified before God by his own works, whether done through the teaching of human nature or that of law, without the grace of God through Jesus Christ, let him be, let him be anathema, unquote. Basically, this means that one's works cannot bring one from a state of spiritual deadness to a state of grace. And furthermore, grace is absolutely necessary for justification. Uh, there is no question about that. In fact, Canon 2 of the session on justification says this. If anyone says that the grace of God through Jesus Christ is given only for this, that man may be able more easily to live justly and to merit eternal life, as if by free will without grace he were able to do both, though hardly indeed and with difficulty, let him be anathema." Unquote. So Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism are both condemned in this canon. The fact that we have these similarities is has been explored further over the centuries and in recent years that has borne uh, fruit in the form of documents such as the Joint Declaration on Justification, which the Catholic Church co-signed with the Lutheran World Federation. Um, the fact that we both hold to grace alone is affirmed in this document. So in paragraph 15 of the Joint Declaration says this, In faith we hold the conviction that justification is the work of the triune God. 
The Father sent his Son into the world to save sinners. The foundation and presupposition of justification is the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ. Justification thus means that Christ himself is our righteousness in which we share through the Holy Spirit in accord with the will of the Father. Together we confess, by grace alone, in faith, in Christ-saving work, and not because of any merit on our part, we are accepted by God and receive the Holy Spirit, who renews our hearts while equipping and calling us to do good works." And furthermore, and this is one of the things that surprise a lot of people, the debate isn't even about sola fide as a phrase. The reason for that is that many pre-Reformation Catholic theologians, such as Saints Augustine and Aquinas, have used the phrase in ways that are consistent with Catholic soteriology. Even in recent times, the phrase has been used positively by Catholic authors. For example, the annex to the Joint Declaration states, justification takes place by grace alone, by faith alone. The person is justified apart from works. Grace creates faith not only when faith begins in a person, but as long as faith lasts, unquote. And more recently, Pope Benedict XVI in one of his addresses stated this, being just simply means being with Christ and in Christ, and this suffices. For this reason, Luther's phrase, faith alone, is true if it is not opposed to faith in charity and love. Faith is looking at Christ, entrusting oneself to Christ, being united to Christ, conformed to Christ, to his life. In the form, the life of Christ is love. Hence, to believe is to conform to Christ and to enter into his love. Um, going further, um, a Catholic theologian apologist, Jimmy Aiken, who was also like me, a former Reformed Protestant, explains that the faith which saves us is a faith that is formed by caritas, or love. And this is a phrase which comes from St. Paul when he states, uh, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Galatians 5.6. This is something I'll speak more on when I get to my exegesis of um, Paul's epistles and James. Nevertheless, uh, even with all of these similarities in our viewpoint, some differences do remain between the Catholic view on justification and the various Protestant views on the topic. And I want to emphasize that it's views in the plural, because there is more than one Protestant view. Lutherans, for example, differ from the Reformed in some areas of justification. And even among the Reformed writers, there are differences of opinion, all of which are relevant to our discussion. There are also the Wesleyan Arminians, who differ with both Lutherans and Reformed on some key areas. Catholics differ with Protestants of all stripes on whether or not good works done in a state of grace are meritorious. Catholics, though, will agree with Wesleyans against both Lutherans and Reformed on whether or not it is necessary to cooperate with God's grace to be justified. Catholics, on the other hand, will agree with Lutherans against the Reformed on whether or not justification is a one-time event as opposed to a continuing process, which is something we both affirm. And we also both affirm that um, there is a connection between justification and the sacraments. But that will come later as we explore the Reformation part of my little historical theology um, survey. Before we unpack these differences, we need to talk about the patristic period. Um, there's a 1,500-year um, uh, exp explication of the doctrine of justification preceding the Reformation, and we should make note of what the early church fathers say. Now, there's one basic error that many Protestant apologists make, including myself back in the day, which is to take any quote from the early church fathers that uses the phrase faith alone in a positive light and assume that that is evidence for the Protestant view. 
However, as we've already established, there are interpretations of that phrase that are fully compatible with Catholic soteriology. And many of those same patristic quotes, when taken in their context, reveal a more Catholic understanding of salvation than a Protestant one. The Scottish Reformed theologian T.F. Torrance recognized this. In his book, The Doctrine of Grace and the Apostolic Fathers, he accuses the early church fathers of having an unbiblical, in his view, doctrine of salvation. He accuses the Didache, for example, of teaching that a person can justify himself. And St. Ignatius of Antioch, he accuses of outright Romanism in at least two different places. And we see a similar teaching going beyond the Apostolic Fathers to the rest of the patristic period. Alistair McGrath, in his historical survey of justification, uh, Justitia Dei, notes that every church father in the first three centuries had a high view of the role of works in salvation. They all taught that one must live a life of righteousness so as to not fall from grace. None of them really articulated, though, a theology of merit in the classical theological sense. That would have to wait until St. Augustine. And Augustine is undoubtedly the most important patristic figure in the study of justification. Both sides of the Reformation appealed to his writings for support, and there persists the myth in popular Calvinism that he was a sort of proto-reformer whose soteriology was abandoned by Rome and retrieved by the reformers. However, as McGrath points out, Augustine's soteriology was, in almost all of the major areas, closer to Trent than it was to either Augsburg or Geneva. For example, he held that human free will remained even after the fall, albeit in an attenuated form. He also believed that salvation is something that could be lost, contra the Calvinist tulip. Most significantly, however, he held that good works done in a state of grace were meritorious for eternal life. He was the first to posit a distinction between strict merit, i.e. something that is meritorious in and of itself, and condign merit, i.e. something that is meritorious because God chooses to see them as such. St. Augustine held that our good works have condign merit before God. In his words, quote, when God crowns our merits, he crowns nothing but his own gifts. That is a quote from Epistle 194. This is precisely the Catholic view as presented in the Catechism, section 2009, which quotes the same Augustine passage. And every other medieval theologian post-Augustine held to essentially the same view until we get to the Reformation. Now, when we fast forward to that period, we see that justification became one of the primary areas of contention between Rome and the reformers. All the reformers held justification to be the article on which the church stands or falls, and yet, even among the reformers, there were differences in opinion. One difference concerns whether justification is continuous or a one-time event. Calvinists who are used to seeing justification as one discrete event may be surprised to learn that just Martin Luther held to the view that God continually justifies the believer throughout um, his life, and that this justification is concretely expressed through baptism, the Eucharist, and confession. In addition, Luther's protege, Philip Melanchthon, held that justification, um, in justification, sinners are actually made righteous. In his apology to the Augsburg Confession, Melanchthon wrote this, quote, we have shown that through faith alone we are justified, that is, unrighteous people are made righteous or regenerated." Unquote. This is in contrast with the reform tendency to see justification as declarative only without any ontological change. Lutheran theologian Jordan Cooper, in his book The Great Divide, explains the Lutheran view by stating, 
when God justifies the sinner, he is declared righteous and consequently is righteous, unquote. And that is exactly what Catholics believe as well. And even among the Reformed, there are differences. Not many Calvinists realize that many Reformed scholastics held to what is essentially double justification. You have an initial justification that is by faith alone, and a final justification on Judgment Day that is by works. Martin Busser, for example, taught this. He referred to justification as the justification of the impious and final justification as justification of the pious. Likewise, John Calvin states a similar view in his Institutes when I, he says this in Book 3, Chapter 15. For I do not accept the distinction made by the learned and otherwise godly men that good works deserve the graces that are confirmed upon us in this life, while everlasting salvation is the reward of faith alone. For the Lord almost always lodges in heaven the reward of toil and the crown of battle. Also, Francis Turretin teaches this in his Institutes of Elenctic Theology when he states, quote, Are they, i.e. good works, required as the means and way for possessing salvation? This we hold, unquote. The Presbyterian theologian Mark Jones provides numerous examples in his book Antinomianism, where he shows that there is a strong stream of Reformed scholastic and Puritan thought that regards man's final salvation as a reward for good works. And more recently, you might remember that there was a debate over John Piper making a similar statement. <clears throat> Many people in the Reformed camp accused Piper of works righteousness. However, his defenders pointed out that what he was saying was nothing less than what reformed scholastics have said throughout the centuries. And that concludes the historical theology part of my presentation. How many minutes do I have left? You've got 11 minutes and 30 seconds left. All right, so this is where I transition to the biblical uh, element of my presentation. So justification is something that we primarily see in Paul's epistles. Uh, towards the end, though, I'm going to segue into James' epistle as well, because that is relevant for our discussion. We're all familiar with passages like Romans 3.28, which says, uh, For we hold that a man is justified by faith from the of the law. Or Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, where it says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that any man should boast. Protestants will often quote these passages, assuming that just by doing so, the matter has been settled in your favor. However, exegeting Paul's justification passages is a little bit more complicated than that, especially when you factor in uh, developments in Pauline studies, such as the new perspective on Paul. And admittedly, I am to a large extent um, uh, in debt to people like uh, N.T. Wright for, and Matthew Bates, who are part of the new perspective for their insights into how to understand Pauline theology. So we need, in order to understand what Paul is saying, we need to define how he uses terms like faith and works. With regards to the word faith, I'd like to make note of a book, uh, Salvation by Allegiance Alone by Matthew Bates. One of the important insights that he offers is that the Greek word pistis, which we often translate as faith, uh, can also have the connotation of loyalty or allegiance rather than mere intellectual assent or trust. You will see uh, this usage, for example, in the Septuagint. In 1 Maccabees 10.27, it is used in a context where it explicitly means loyalty. There is similar usage in 3 Maccabees as well. And outside of the Septuagint, you'll see many uses of pistis in Josephus's writings, where it is used with the connotation of allegiance. 
<clears throat> and as Bates points out, uh, there are many passages in Paul where um, if you read closely how he uses the word pistis or faith, uh, it has that same connotation of loyalty or allegiance. Um, we should also talk about what St. Paul means when he talks about works of the law, because there's an assumption that this could mean any good work that you do. However, law in this context refers specifically to the Torah. In the Septuagint, the word Torah is actually translated into Greek as nomos. And Paul, in writing, in using the word nomos to refer to law, is channeling that understanding. Hence, one could translate expressions such as that as works of Torah. The fact that this is what it means is confirmed for us in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which uses the exact same phrase. Uh, that is reflected in its title, which is Miksat Ma'aseha Torah. In English, precepts of the works of the Torah. The scroll refers specifically to ritual elements of the Torah. So we know that when St. Paul talks about works of Torah, he refers to the Mosaic Law, which involves the Ten Commandments, circumcision, ceremonial washings, etc. What he is specifically countering through this is the Judaizer view that one must adhere to the Old Covenant in order to be Christian. Furthermore, while St. Paul excludes good works as a prerequisite for entering into a relationship with God, he doesn't exclude them as a requirement for salvation once has entered, one has entered into a relationship with God. We see this in various places throughout his writings. For example, Romans 2, verses 6 to 8, he says, quote, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, unquote. Similar quote, it can be found in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 10 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. As one can see from the context of 1 Corinthians, the source of works in question are not the same as works of the law. Rather, they are moral precepts that God expects of believers in every generation. Finally, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Everyone, it is often um, customary to quote verses 8 and 9, but you should never quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and leave out verse 10, because verse 10 is important for understanding what Paul says here. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, it's often assumed that this merely means that works demonstrate faith. This is where we need to get into St. James, who would actually provides a corrective to that understanding. So, in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, we find an extended discussion of the role of works in justification. Here we find the only scriptural use of the phrase faith alone, and is explicitly state, framed in a negative. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James 2.24 um, There's a common Reformed interpretation of this passage that sees this use of justification as referring to one's vindication before man rather than one's right standing before God. The context of James, however, prevents such an interpretation. Uh, first of all, look, look at whom James cites as his examples of people who are justified by works. You have Abraham in verse 21, and you have Rahab in verse 25. If you read the story of Abraham and Isaac, it is clear that God's approval is what is in question, not man's. Genesis 22, verse 16 to 17, God says this, 
Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Likewise, Rahab's story clearly shows that her harboring of the spies led to her salvation, not merely to her being approved by men. Secondly, James states in verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. James is using teleological language here. Um, the word for complete in Greek is teleo, which is also used in James 1 verse 2 to 4 and is used in a noun form in various other places and has that connotation of like completing something that is incomplete. So works, according to James, actually affect faith by making incomplete and without works, faith remains incomplete. And this is corroborated by the last verse in the chapter where he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Unquote. Think about that analogy for a minute. Faith is the body and works are the spirit. The spirit is what makes the body alive. So also works are what makes faith alive. This reinforces the point that he made about works completing faith. And in Catholic theology, this is what we refer to as a distinction between formed and unformed faith. Unformed faith has no works and so remains dead. A formed faith, on the other hand, is made alive by works. Um, St. Paul refers to this as faith working through love, Galatians 5.6. It is agape that forms faith, since agape, rather than the Mosaic law, that is the basis for works in the Christian life. So, in conclusion... Justification is a tricky subject, and there are more fine-tuned distinctions than one initially realizes. Under certain circumstances, Catholics could affirm the phrase faith alone. Conversely, the reform could accept the phrase justified by works if final justification is what is in view. Furthermore, a close reading of scripture shows that while it does teach that one enters into a relationship with God by faith alone, works are still necessary for that salvation to be fully realized at the end. Somehow, both Catholics and Reformed affirm this, but they differ on many of the side details. And finally, I know that a lot of the polemics between Catholics and Reformed could be attenuated if we were a lot more straightforward in admitting some of the nuances, both of our own tradition and that of the other side. That way, we could avoid strawmanning the other position, and we can also avoid arguing over things we don't actually differ on, and be able to more carefully work out the areas of real difficult, real difference, which require much more subtlety and patience. And that concludes my presentation. Awesome. Hey, with that, I will fix the timer here and get up to my side of the presentation. Give me just a second, guys, and then we'll get rolling. That's part of the problem with having to <laughs> juggle all this myself, so that's all right. We'll make it happen. Okay, and sweet. I've got the timer up. You guys should be able to see that. Okay, so first, I would like to say thank you to Lewis for being, being willing to come on and do this debate. Also, thank you to Ron on Twitter for being uh, so tenastic and putting forward the idea that we should make this happen. I've really been looking forward to this, and I look forward to hearing more from Lewis on his experience when it comes to leaving Protestantism for Romanism regarding justification once and for all versus ongoing justification. So it seems to me that within the grand scale of salvation, the, the conversation between Catholics and Protestants, quote-unquote, will somewhere along the lines find its groundings on the doctrine of justification. 
Now, this doctrine will answer the under and overarching differences between Catholicism and Christianity as it applies to salvation and terms of salvation. In essence, in answering this question, how is a man justified before God? We are answering the question, what does a man need to do to be saved? That is, to inherit eternal life. In 1867, James Buchanan wrote, quote, The great cardinal question on the subject of justification, and that on the right settlement of which the determination of every other mainly depends, relates to its immediate ground and amounts in substance to this. What is the righteousness on account of which a sinner is forgiven and accepted as righteous in the sight of God? Or, what is the righteousness to which God has regard in bestowing and on which a sinner should rely for obtaining the forgiveness of his sins and a title to eternal life? Or, in yet another form, whether the righteousness which is revealed as the ground of our justification be the vicarious righteousness of Christ imputed, or, my opponent's view, our own personal righteousness infused and inherent. Let me start by reading the following words here. Quote, As we approach the 500th anniversary of Luther's nailing of the 95 Thesis to the castle church door in Wittenberg, which is traditionally regarded as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, as we approach that time, it is important to remember why the Reformation happened. Ultimately, it was about the question of how we can be made right before God, a question that has to do with the doctrine of justification. Roman Catholics and Protestants answered that question in radical and irreconcilable ways, and this has been understood for the past 500 years. However, in recent decades, some have questioned whether the differences were all that radical. This essay, Why Justification Matters, is a look at recent attempts to bridge the gap between the two understandings of justification and why, despite recent ecumenical statements on the doctrine, the fundamental differences still remain. The historic divisions between the churches cannot be healed simply by pointing to a few areas of common ground. This is especially true when it comes to justification, a doctrine on which Paul argues in Romans and Galatians that a correct understanding is so essential that anyone who teaches an unbiblical view is to be considered anathema. One cannot miss his obstinacy when he declares, quote, If anyone preaches a gospel to you contrary to what you have received, let him be anathema. Galatians 1.9 But why is justification by grace through faith such an important topic? Because it is the, is the foundation of peace with God. As Paul says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 5.1. Here the completed action of justification is the ground for the present peace that Christians enjoy with God. Because of this peace, John can say confidently that you may know that you have eternal life in 1 John 5.13. This justification is not based on our changing ourselves by self-effort, but by the Greek verb dikaiao indicates our acquittal before God, and this acquittal is based, as Paul states, by faith apart from the works of the law, Romans 3.28. Now, in conclusion, why uh, this is why Christians must affirm that in the words of the 39 articles of religion, we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith, and that not of our own works or deservings. What I just quoted were the words of my debate opponent, Louis Dizon, written prior to his conversion to Catholicism a little over a year ago. I've read his blog describing his conversion to Catholicism, and I didn't see anything about the doctrine of justification, though I may have missed it. I am highly interested to see how he so recently uh, had such a strong view uh, against the Catholic doctrine of justification and how he can now hold to the position he once vehemently 
opposed. A couple of days ago, I messaged Lewis these words, quote, You don't have to answer this, but I would like to ask anyway. Do you believe this? Justification is not a completed work of salvation. It is but the beginning of the salvation journey that probably isn't even completed after death. Justification opens a path to eternal salvation by good works and through the community of the church, unquote. Or this, quote, I'm only asking for clarification so I don't misrepresent you. Justification is only extrinsically imputed and that the act of being justified is only punctual. Trent maintains the possibility of human cooperation in grace, the growth of grace by means of good works, and the event of justification, unquote. This was his response, quote, The first one looks too vaguely worded, the, the second seems better, unquote. One thing that I would strongly urge Lewis to consider is this. I would strongly suggest that what you have done is left one distortion of the gospel in Calvinism for another false gospel altogether. My objective is to show that a man is justified and declared righteous by what God has done for man without any contributions to salvation. So I'll show the differences of one, what Catholicism teaches on the subject, versus two, what the Bible teaches on the subject. Then we'll wrap it up with why these differences are so important and worthy of our consideration. So, when it comes to studying the doctrine of salvation, there are three main areas that any religion or sect may rest categorically. One is works alone, known as legalism. Two is faith and works, a form of Galatianism. And then three would be faith alone, which is God's plan of salvation. In Galatians 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This, would, uh, this only would I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit... Are you now made perfect by the flesh? Now, we'll draw out more on verse 3 and the distinctions that I believe um, uh, arise between the Roman Catholic uh, perspective on salvation and my own. So here's what I'm going to cover on my end of the conversation, and we will turn it back over to Lewis. I'll define the Christian view of justification, then I'll take different aspects of the declaration itself as being one, legal, too constitutive, and then I'll close the grounds with the grounds and the instrument of this declaration. Then I'll wrap up my remaining time describing what Rome teaches about justification, and we'll draw some conclusions if we have time. So the Christian view of justification. Let's get right to the point with some definitions. Righteousness and justification go hand in hand. In line with the definition of righteousness, God's righteousness is connected with his judgment. Only God is perfectly suited to judge our lives because he is perfectly righteous. But of course, we're fallen and sinful, and so we can expect from God's righteousness only condemnation. But as we see, Scripture presents God's righteousness not only as a standard of judgment, but also as a means of salvation. God's righteous deeds are his acts to redeem sinners from oppressors. What this means is that when God makes a gracious commitment to those who come to Christ in believing what God has said about salvation... We'll get more specific with that as we go. Uh, The essence of justification is that he endures God's righteous condemnation so that sinners may be declared righteous for his sake. So justification is an act of God's free grace to sinners in which he pardons all their sins, past, present, and future, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything good in them or anything good done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them 
and received by faith alone. That is the substitutionary atonement of Christ, which we'll talk more about in just a second. Jesus, if if it is the propitiatory sacrifice through the biblical model called penal substitutionary atonement, and thereby has paid the penalty of sin for all mankind, past, present, and future. He's been raised victorious over death and hell, holding the keys to death and hell, whereby man is declared righteous by means of faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone by being judged uh, by the righteousness of Christ alone. Now, Lewis, who once held to this view, will now have to openly reject this view and thereby reject the teaching uh, that Jesus is his only hope for salvation. Lewis will have to take the position that he will be judged by his cooperation with grace and will one day stand before God with his own righteousness as the presentation for his salvation versus the righteousness of Christ. This is what it boils down to, folks. Consider what I'm saying here, and we'll draw this out as we go along. So justification is a legal declaration. Let's talk about this. And the language here is forensic. That is the language of a law court. In that court, God is the judge and we are on trial for our sins. The wages of sin is death, so we clearly deserve to die. But Jesus has taken that death penalty in our place. So the divine judge turns to us and he pronounces us not guilty. He even goes beyond that as a secular judge would never do and says that we are positively righteous because of Christ, having the very righteousness of Christ imputed to us. That is our justification. It is so important to distinguish between justification and sanctification. Roman Catholic theology makes them overlap. So in justification, God declares us righteous. In sanctification, he makes us righteous. One is our standing and one is our state. While your standing can never change, your state can, and this state affects fellowship and not sonship. That is key to get down. Fellowship, uh, uh, let me say that again. Your standing never, can never change, your state can, and this state affects your fellowship and not your sonship. So, justification is forensic. It, it is, it's about our legal status, not our inner character. The important thing is that in justification, God justifies the ungodly, those who by their inner character are wicked. Contrary to Roman Catholicism, God does not justify us because he likes our inner character, nor even because he likes uh, what he himself has done within us, our infused righteousness, as Catholicism calls it. He justifies us only because of Christ. The main difference here is that Catholicism teaches that sanctification is the process whereby God infuses grace to us at initial salvation that, too, we might have good works to cooperate with that grace, which will one day be uh, the basis of which our uh, judgment before God determines our ultimate justification, which is called final justification. This is the fundamental difference. One side says you are declared righteous once and for all, and good works follow as a result of being justified, while the other says quite the opposite. In Scripture, many passages indicate the forensic nature of justification. In Deuteronomy 25.1, judges in Israel are to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Clearly, this means that judges are to declare the innocence of the righteous and the wickedness of the wicked. It cannot mean that the judges are to make people righteous or to make people wicked. In Luke 7.29, we read that some people declared God just, literally justified God in the King James, because of Jesus' words. Clearly, that cannot mean that people made God just. 
Romans 4.5, God justifies the ungodly apart from works. Since it's apart from works, justify cannot mean to make righteous, only to declare righteous. This is extremely important when considering the fundamental differences between Lewis and myself. He now believes that he must be made righteous when he once believed that he was declared righteous. In Romans 8, 33 and 34, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. In other passages, the word justify is the opposite of condemn. But condemn means to declare someone guilty, not to make that person guilty. Thus, it makes sense to take justify to mean declare righteous. Now, you'll see that consistent meaning of justify throughout Paul's writings and James' writings when he is talking about the justification of sinners unto salvation. Romans 3, 20, 26, 28, 5, 1, 8, 30, 10, 4, and 10, 10. You'll see that also in Galatians 2, 10, and 3, 24. Now, let's talk briefly about the constitutive declaration. And uh, this concept, someone might object that a mere declaration is not enough. Obviously, if a judge were to declare a defendant not guilty when he was really guilty, that it would not be just. We saw earlier the admonition to judges in Deuteronomy 29, uh, 25, 1, that a judge is to justify those who are really righteous and condemn those who are really wicked. Some have objected that the idea of Protestant doctrine of justification violates that principle. God looks at wicked people and falsely declares them to be righteous, they say. But this is to forget the work of Christ, because Christ died in our place. God's declaration is true and right. It is not a legal fiction or a false judgment, because Christ really did pay the complete penalty for sin. So in him, we really are innocent and righteous, because he is innocent and righteous, and we have his innocence and righteousness imputed directly to us. John Murray argued that justification is not a mere declaration, but a declaration that constitutes a new legal status, a constitutive declaration, as he put it. He took the phrase, made righteous, in Romans 5.19 to mean constituted righteous. And that's fine, but the word constitute might confuse some people, so it's very close to the word make. But we're not talking about making righteous here in the sense of, ju- of sanctification. Even when we talk about God's constituting us righteous, we're still in the legal or forensic sphere. So, to constitute righteous means God is constituting a new legal status for us. So remember that this constitutive declaration, it's still forensic, it's still legal, and it's still in the courtroom sphere. It is not the same thing as sanctification. It does not renew us from within. It rather provides us a new legal position righteousness in Christ, which Lewis uh, briefly referred to earlier when he made reference to Ephesians chapter 2, and we may get a chance to talk about that. The elements of this declaration or justification are the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Because of Christ, God has taken away sin from us so that we may never again rise to condemn us, so they may never again rise to condemn us. You see this in Psalm 103, verse 3, Psalm 130, verse 4, Romans 4, 6 through 8, 8, 1, 8, 33 through 34, Ephesians 1, 7, and so on and so on. So, God removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west, as Psalm 103, verse 12 puts it. And that is not only for a subjective 
temporary period of time until we remove ourselves from Christ and they are reconstituted to us. That's a false view. He also imputes Christ's righteousness. That's in Isaiah 61.10, Romans 3.21 and 22, 5.19, 1 Corinthians 1.30, 2 Corinthians 5.21. This means not only that he removes our sins, but that he positively adds to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. So our legal status is not just not guilty, not neutral, but righteous once and for all. If you think your legal status numerically, sin has plunged you deep into negative numbers. God's forgiveness brought you back up to zero. But the righteousness of Christ took you far above zero in in the eyes of God. So here's what is often called doubly imputation. God imputes our sins to Christ, and Christ imputes his righteousness to us. This follows from that doctrine that the atonement is a substitutionary sacrifice, which Rome rejects. Christ receives the punishment for our sins, and we receive the blessings of his righteousness. This is a doctrine Lewis once held, which he now must reject. I would ask Lewis, to what extent does the work of Christ end, and your work begin in the effort to win Christ and merit eternal life for you or for anyone else? This is also an implication of our union with Christ. We become the righteousness of God in him. Lewis, you've given this up for what? Tradition? Better apologists? For the church fathers? The patristics? What have you given this up for? Writers have often objected to the idea of imputation, arguing that guilt and righteousness are not the sorts of things we can be transferred from one person to another, even by God. How can this be How this can happen is certainly a mystery. It could never happen in any human court that the guilt of the innocent of the one defendant could be transferred to another. But, marvelously, this is precisely what happens in God's economy. It is clearly the teaching of Scripture, and in Scripture it is the aspect of our union with Christ. Now, we could get into the grounds of justification and the instrument of justification, which um, I'll just briefly say the grounds of justification um, are not about our obedience, whether active or passive, but about Christ's active and passive obedience, and uh, our instrument of being placed into Christ through the instrument of faith alone. The instrument of faith does not save us, but by the grounds of of, uh, the instrument of faith are the grounds by which we are justified. Now, let me briefly look at what Catholicism teaches for the next six minutes to close out my, my, uh, my time here, and then I'll turn it back to Lewis. The three ca- there are three categories of justification within the Catholic teaching of salvation. From what I can gather, much of this comes from CARM.org, to the credit of um, Matt, uh, Matt Slick, who we are working on putting a debate together on limited atonement. But anyways, he says this. Uh, one is a- attaining salvation or justification. Two is maintaining it. Three is regaining it. So salvation in Roman Catholicism is a process with many steps, one being actual grace, Faith, good works, baptism, confession, participation in the sacraments, such as the Mass, penance, indulgences, keeping the commandments, and I think I said confession already. So, basically, salvation is attained through grace by faith and necessarily includes baptism and good works. It is maintained by good works and participation in the sacraments. If lost, it is regained through the sacrament of penance, which only a Roman Catholic priest can administer. This Roman Catholic priest is the altar Christus, which means another Christ, 
who is acting in the place of Christ, either forgiving your sins or retaining your sins at his own will, which is probably a discussion for another debate, but one that needs mentioned in the discussion of justification. Add to this purgatorial cleansing after a person dies as a means of atoning for your own sins, you can see that salvation is an arduous process. In Catholicism, a person can gain salvation or lose it many times, depending on the number of sins committed, their severity, and how much of the sacraments they participate in, in order to regain grace, which enables them to do good works by which they are justified. Furthermore, justifying grace is infused into the Catholic upon baptism. The amount of grace infused is dependent upon the amount of preparation for baptism and via the sacraments. This grace can be gradually lost through venial sins or forfeited altogether with mortal sins according to the Catholic teaching. Salvation, or the state of being and sanctifying grace, which is infused grace that makes a person holy and acceptable to God, can entirely be lost if mortal sin is committed. Mortal sins are extremely serious sins with such as murder, adultery, homosexuality, etc. Although I would say with this Pope uh, that's not so much true. <laughs> mortal sin is a transgression of God's law that is willful, knowledgeable, and on purpose. Mortal sin results in the complete loss of all grace. The person's relationship with God is severed. Mortal sin damns a person. If the person dies in a state of mortal sin, he goes to hell and will never escape. Quote, According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Article 1861, it says this, Mortal sin is, radically is a radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. It results in the loss of charity and the privation of sanctifying grace, that is, of the state of grace. If it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, um, it causes exclusion from God's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. Um, in Article 1033, it says, quote, To die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choices. Now, for the next last two minutes, I want to state here um, what the Council of Trent teaches on a few of these subjects regarding justification. I'll preface it with this. The Council of Trent is the point in time when, in which the Roman Catholic Church condemned the gospel of Jesus Christ and anathematized those who believe in it. It's the unprecedented point in history in which the Catholic Church condemns herself through the dogmatic and radical teachings of the false gospel within Catholicism. Let me illustrate. In Canon 9, it says this, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. And Canon 8 says that if anyone saith that by the, uh, by the said sacraments of the new law, grace is not conferred through the act performed, but that faith alone in the divine promise suffices for the obtaining of grace, let him be anathema. If any, uh, in Canon 7, if anyone saith that the baptized are, by baptism itself, made debtors, but by faith alone, and not to the observance of the whole law, of Christ, let him be anathema. If anyone saith in Canon 6 that faith alone is a sufficient preparation for receiving the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist, let him be anathema. For my last minute, let me summarize with this. I've attempted to briefly deal with the primary sources from the Vatican Archive and Vatican II and the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, which I will get to Vatican II, um, regarding what the, versus what the Bible teaches in the following statement. 
If you compare the Catechism articles of 1366 and 67 dealing with the Mass as related to Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 8, we see a, quote, once and for all finished propitiatory sacrifice, unquote, in the Bible against the Catholic teaching of an ongoing propitiatory sacrifice of the Christ, of the, of the Mass, as a representation of the body and blood of Christ, having been called down from heaven, from his throne in heaven, to be the actual substance in the Mass itself, which is contrary to the Bible. The Catechism itself says the Mass is the heart of Catholicism in 1324, where it says the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. And this heart of Catholicism happens to contradict the heart of the biblical gospel. Uh, there's so much to, to say. My time is up, but... Um, I'll summarize it with that. Um, there's a vast different that cannot, difference that cannot be reconciled, and I would echo the words of Lewis when he says that these differences um, are of vast importance and should be drawn out. So with that, um, we have got time for me to put Lewis back on, and we should have, let me see how much, what we've got here, 10 minutes of cross-examination, uh, which will be, uh, you'll have the first 10 minutes, so let me put the timer up on the board, and we'll go right. from there. Okay, so, um, let me see, it's my turn to ask questions, right? Yes, sir. So, I got two sets of questions. One is generally on historical and systematic theology. The other is on um, biblical theology. Let me start with the systematic and historical theology. Uh, first of all, um, before our debate, I sent you a comparative study of the Reformed, Lutheran, and Wesleyan views on justification. I just want to be clear, which of those views would you say you identify most closely with? Um, I, I don't believe that I would identify with the Roman or the Lutheran view, and I think that that can be seen in, uh, in, um, in the unity that, that Catholicism and Lutheranism have, have come to um, find... Um, kind of, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, the similarities between what they believe on the doctrine of justification. So, um, I, I don't believe that justification is an ongoing process. I believe that it is uh, once and for all finished on the cross, and uh, what 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 actually imputes the righteousness of Christ to uh, the unrighteous righteousness would be the instrument of faith. So, whatever the differences would be uh, between uh, what you sent me, uh, and what I just summarized, I, I think, could be drawn out from there. So would you also categorize the Lutheran view as a false gospel? Um, anything, th I, I would summarize anything that, um, that uh, places any emphasis on the meritorious work of the unrighteous, um, or even the pious or the unpious, in conjunction with grace, um, would mean that grace ceases to be grace and is no longer grace but law. And uh, so anything, anything that does that, I don't care what it is, you can put whatever label on it that you want, that would be a false gospel. Okay, well that brings us to the Reformed view then, because there were some scholastic Reformed theologians such as Calvin and Turretin who said that uh, there is a sense in which final salvation is by works. Um, would you disagree with Calvin, Turretin, and the other Reformed scholastics on that point? Yeah, I'm not Reformed. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm actually working on setting up a debate with Matt Slick on limited atonement. I think that I think that limited atonement is a, a distortion of the gospel. I don't know that I can draw myself to say it's another gospel altogether, but if if it's not, it is it's dangerously close. So 
Um, I, you know, that's something I'm, I've got to work out in my own heart. But yeah, I disagree with Calvin and Luther on the on the subject as well um, when okay. it comes to that. So yeah. And and I'm curious to get your thoughts on patristics. Like, would it bother you if there were no precedents for the view of justification that you enunciated prior to the Reformation? Um, it would bother me if if it were true. Uh, it doesn't bother me because it's not true. I think that I think that you can. And and I didn't pull up any of the patristic quotes in, uh, for this debate. Um, I probably should have so that I could support that a little better. Um, and maybe maybe after after the debate, I I can send something like that to you. Um, but. But yeah, I think that you can use the patristics um, on both sides of the argument for just about any. You can make the patristics say anything that that you want that you want them to, um, and and maybe that's something that we could we could draw out in a discussion later. But I, for me personally, I'm trying to limit the the scope of the conversation from my perspective to what the Bible teaches. And obviously, you would argue that um, what the Bible teaches can can be shown traditionally through throughout history. So I agree with that, but I also uh, would disagree and say that there were no quotes of the patristics that that would agree with my position that it was solely the imputed righteousness of Christ to the unrighteous um, through the means of faith alone as as apart from um, ongoing justification of works. So maybe that's something that you and I could um, talk about after, but you know, I don't know if, how much you're um, your particular position rides on on that, so we'll we'll see. I think um, uh, historical theology is very important because Christians have been reading the Bible for two thousand years, and if um, um, if there's an interpretation that springs up relatively recently in history, that is um, uh, a little bit suspect to me. Um, however, that is a good way to segue into the biblical theology section okay. of our presentation. Um, First of all, there is the, you're familiar with the new perspective on Paul, right? Yeah, I believe N.T. Wright um, has popularized this. I have not spent as, as much time as I would like um, researching the new perspective on Paul. Uh, what I've found uh, is just from the brief amount of research that I have done on it, the podcast that I've left, listened to with N.T. Wright and Justin Brierley, um, and that, that realm of the conversation, I, I think that a lot of it has to be um, allegorized or or it, it, I just I, I don't know exactly what to do with it yet because I'm just not as familiar with it as I should be so well um, as a Catholic I'm generally positive towards it because I think that a lot of it um, actually supports the Catholic interpretation of Paul um, but would you regard it as um, heretical then I just or? don't know enough about it um, to come okay. to a conclusion so I'd rather not I'd rather not right. call it heretical so I just don't Let's know. go directly to um, Paul then. Um, both Paul and James cite Abraham as an example of a justified man. Yeah. In your view, when was Abraham justified? Was it at Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, or other? Yeah, so um, what's what's interesting about the... Com and I won't... <laughs> I could spend the next four minutes on talking about Abraham, but I, I won't, uh, just to keep you going there, but... Um, I, I think the primary problem is your view has to um, set uh, the writing of Paul and the writing of James at odds with each other, with Romans 4 and James 2, and my, my perspective does not have to do that. Um, I believe that Abraham actually called out to God um, 
he called on the name of the Lord twice. And uh, um, it, it's in Genesis 12, and then in Genesis 13 is when he's declared righteous. Um, and then you see in Genesis 22 um, where it, he takes Isaac to the altar. And that's where James 2 says uh, that the justification of Abraham, uh, where he talks about the justification of Abraham. But if, if you actually look at what justification means, it literally means to, be, to declare one righteous. Um, so if we, if we look at um, when Abraham was declared righteous, it would be in Genesis, either 12 or 13. That's debatable, but it's definitely before he offered Isaac, um, which, by the way, he did not go through with that. So you cannot say that he did offer Isaac and, and go through with the offering. So um, even then, it, you'd have to look at that and say that that's a, a picture of, of Christ on the cross with, with the Father offering the Son of Christ on the cross in place of um, the sinner, which is something that you would have to deny, and maybe we can draw that out more, but anyways. Um, so, yeah, sorry, I misspoke when I said offering up Isaac, but be that as it may. Um, how about um, David? Because St. Paul uses David in Romans 4 as an example yeah. of a justified man as well. Yep. In your view, when was David justified? You know, what's amazing um, about David is I, I don't know that I can pin down the moment that he was justified. I think a lot of Christians today um, would have the same problem in their own life when when they try to talk about the moment that they were saved, the moment that they were born again. And um, um, that's part of the problem. I don't know exactly when David was justified, but I know that he did pray out to God um, with a broken and contrite heart and uh, ask for him to be forgiven. And he, he talked about... Uh, the blessed man who doesn't have his sins uh, imputed to him. So, um, what's interesting about that conversation is you would say that that David was. Pro you would have to say that David is burning in hell today because he he committed two mortal sins, adultery and murder. Um, and uh, I just don't see how you can consistently hold the Catholic view of David being justified with mortal sins um, when clearly the Bible teaches. Uh, that he was a righteous man, and he was a man after God's own heart. So, um, unless God is sending men after his own heart to hell, uh, it, I think you've got a serious problem there. I don't see how it's a problem. I'll get to that in my rebuttal period. But um, um, would you say then that David's justification took place before he wrote the words that Paul quotes in chapter four, verses seven and eight? Yeah. Again, I don't. I don't know that I can nail down the moment. Um, mm. that David David is declared righteous um, but but you know and that that's that's similar to uh, the conversation of of the atoning work of Christ and the necessity for Christ um, to descend into hell and preach to them the gospel which I know that you would reject um, as the teaching in second Peter and Ephesians 4 um, where it says, uh, what is it that he who ascended is he who also descended in the lower parts of the earth and, and led captive those who were in captivity? Um, that, I think that's a, a reference to those who had died before the atoning work of Christ and went to Abraham's bosom. And uh, once the, the atonement of Christ had, had taken place, that's when they ultimately had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. And it couldn't have happened before then, but they could be, you know, covered just not um just not I, I don't know what the word is but yeah there's a difference there but anyways well, if about christ descended to hell it's actually the apostles creed which catholics recite all the time and the only denials of it i've ever heard have come from like 
Calvinists. Okay. Yeah, as in me, I do have one last question. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, um, how would you interpret Romans chapter 2, verses 6 to 8? Uh, let me get there real quick. Romans 2, 6 to 8. And also include, um, inclusive of verses 12 to 13 as well. 2, 6 to 8. Skip 9, 10, 11. Okay. Uh, it says, Who will render to every man according to his deeds. Hang on a second. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, so... Um, now, I mean, we're, we're past time here a little bit, but that's all right. I'm not worried about it. I want to answer this. Um, so he says in verse 6, Who will render to every man according to his deeds... To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life. But unto them uh, that are contentious and do not obey the truth, uh, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish upon every soul of man that does evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that works good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of person for as many have sinned without the law uh, shall also perish without the law and as many have sinned in the law shall be judged uh, by the law for not the hearers of the law are just before God but the doers of the law are just uh, shall be justified for the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law these things having not the law are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts okay so where, uh, you said to 16? Yeah. Um, like, you can take the whole chapter. That's, I yeah. just want to hear exegesis of it. Okay, so I'll just give a brief summary. I think in, in, in Romans 1, um, you've, got, uh, you've got God showing um, the natural state of the Jewish people. Romans 2, you've got uh, God showing the natural state of the Gentile people. Gen uh, Romans 3, you've got uh, the natural um, state of all people. And uh, he's drawing the, the differences between um, the righteous uh, people who are literally um, seeking for their own righteousness by the works of the law. And he's comparing that to um, those who are, seeking, who, who are seeking God by the law, and where he declares there are none righteous, no, not one, um, in reference to those who are seeking to, um, to follow the law to attain their own righteousness. So I think that that's what he's describing in Romans 2, where those are seeking to um, find their own righteousness by their own works. And he's declared in, in Romans 3 that you're not going to find it there, and you're not seeking God in the way that he, he desires to be sought. And so he, he summarizes the thing in Romans 4, um, where he talks about Abraham, who was justified once and for all, um, by the faith that he had in the promise of what God had given him. So I think that's the best that I can do in this short amount of time here. So anyways. Um, okay. Let's see here. Let me go to, let me get my questions here, and I'll put the timer up. Okay, so my first question would be this. So to what extent does the work of Christ end and your work begin in the effort to win Christ and merit eternal life for you or for anyone else. Okay, so here's the thing. There's no real beginning and end, strictly speaking. And the reason why I say this is because um, if you look at the um, 
definition of what condign merit is, which is the kind of merit that's attached to our works, it says that it's a merit that is derived by virtue of uh, the virtues of Christ. So all of the um, works that we do have merit because they're done in Christ. And this is something that you see in Hebrews 11, verse 6, where it says, without faith it's impossible to please God. It's also um, based on what St. Augustine taught about how when God crowns our merits, he's really just crowning our own gifts. So again, strictly speaking, there is no end to one and beginning to the other. They uh, meld seamlessly, as it were. Okay. Now, when uh, this is going to transition to the next question, um, and, and I'm, I, I really struggled on how I would word this, um, so perhaps you could reword it in the way that you think is, is better to word it. Um, but here's the question. You can run with it however you want. When you, Lewis, stand before God on the, on the day of judgment, will you be judged on your own righteousness, that is, your cooperation within grace to merit your own righteousness, or will you stand before God on the day of judgment with the righteousness of Christ imputed to you? I believe that ultimately um, it is the righteousness of Christ. Um, I wouldn't say it was just imputed. I believe that it is actually um, given to me. It becomes truly mine. Um, if you want to answer it the way a Catholic would answer it, um, I would refer you to paragraph 2011 of the Catechism. And it actually cites uh, St. Therese of Lisieux, which is a Catholic saint from the 19th century. And she says actually this. Um, I want you to pay attention. It says, uh, she says, After Earth's exile, I hope to go and enjoy you in the fatherland, but I do not want to lay up merits for heaven. I want to work for your love alone. In the evening of this life, I shall appear before you with empty hands, for I do not ask you, Lord, to count my works. All our justice is blemished in your eyes. I wish then to be clothed in your own justice and to receive from your love the eternal possession of yourself." Unquote. So a Catholic who really understands Catholic soteriology uh, will say exactly the words that I just said. Okay, yeah, so good. Um, I, I would ask to kind of follow up in that area of the conversation. If, if that, I, I can't pronounce, was it a woman? Is that, was that a woman? Yeah, St. Therese of Lisieux. She was a nun from okay. the 19th century. So, um, it, when she says that she she shows she stands before God with no works of righteousness in her hands, but a desire to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, how would you reconcile the differences of, uh, of that particular point with meriting grace um, by the means of grace. Do you? I guess I should preface that with: Do you believe that um, you merit justification by means of grace? Um, yeah, merit is a tricky um, word to use because there are different types of merit. I would say that we do merit it in the sense that um, God chooses to see them as meritorious. We don't merit them in the sense that God. Um, God is obligated to um, see them as such. I see. Uh, so it's not really a contractual type of thing where, you know, God 
uh, makes us sign a contract, we fulfill our end of the bargain, and he pays us. Yeah. Um, that is precisely the understanding that St. Paul is excluding in Romans 4, I believe. Okay, so in the section of the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, in Article or Chapter 2010, um, I... It, it says this, quote, Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, unquote. Now, I'll ask again, can you merit your salvation as stated in uh, um, section 2010? If you understand that merit as condign merit, as opposed to strict merit, then I would say yes. In fact, uh, it's interesting that you quote that. Um, I'm looking at the exact section of catechism as well and the sentence before that it says this since the initiative belongs to god in the order of grace no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion so you need to um have that complete picture because if you just take one snippet and divorce it from the rest it tends to distort the image okay so let me let me uh let me get a, a more whole picture since you you want to include that um do you believe that it takes grace for you to merit justification, and that you meriting justification is no longer of works because it's it's of grace. Is that a good way to summarize your position? Mm. Yeah. So, I, I, again, I should emphasize, contra the late R.C. Sproul, Catholics do not disagree with sola gratia. So we believe that uh, ultimately our salvation is by grace alone. Um, both Trent and the more recent uh, joint declaration affirm this. Um, as of whether grace, if it is grace, is no longer works. Remember at my opening presentation, I pointed out that when Paul is referring to works, of, he's referring to basically the Torah. He's referring to the Old Covenant. He's trying to exclude the Judaizer position that you must uh, adhere to the Old Covenant law in order to be saved. Um, okay. He's not saying that no works in any um, context whatsoever um, um, contribute towards your salvation because if that was the case then he would be contradicting his own words in Romans chapter 2 okay um, now you just mentioned the Council of Trent I want to ask if, if you uh, agree with this and I, I'm not really up on my Roman numerals anything past like a hundred so uh, it's I'll agree with it before you even cite it yeah, so you agree with the Council of Trent. Okay, uh, let me read this, and I want to get your um, your take on it here. He says, uh, Justin Martyr communicates with Christians who observe the law, not a few Catholics do otherwise, where he says, And Trifo again inquired, quote, But if, if someone, uh, knowing that this is so, after he recognizes that this man is Christ and is believed in and obeys him, wishes, however, to observe these institutions, will he be saved? Uh, unquote. I said, quote, In my opinion, Trifo... I might be saying his name wrong. Um, such an one will be saved if he does not strive in every way to persuade other men. I mean, those Gentiles who have been circumcised from error by Christ to observe the same things as himself, telling them that they will not be saved unless they do so. This you did yourself at the commandment of the discourse when you declared that I would not be saved unless I observed these institutions. Unquote. Now, in, in Canon uh, 9, it says, If anyone saith, in the Council of Trent, that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining of grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. Um, now, I, I do believe that you're saved by the instrument of faith alone, 
Do you think that I'm anathema, Lewis? Um, again, depends entirely on what you mean when you say faith alone. If you mean exactly what Canon 9 is meaning to exclude, then that would be the case. However, if you have a more qualified view of faith alone, which, for example, many of the early church fathers and even medieval Catholic theologians such as Aquinas had, then that uh, proposition is not necessarily excluded. Now, I'd like to draw that out a little bit more, but I would ask you this. Can one be reconciled back to Christ once they have been declared anathema? Um, yes, by repenting. Okay, and how would that, that be consistent with what um, Hebrews 10 speaks about as once someone has fallen away from the graces of Christ and has tasted of the gift of the Holy Ghost that they cannot be brought again to repentance. Well, um, I think you mean Hebrews 6, actually. Um, it's a very tricky subject, and um, um, like, there are, there's no straightforward way of answering that one, um, but I'm, I know for a fact that the one thing that could exclude you from um, salvation permanently, according to Jesus, is um, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which presumably that is something that the people that uh, Hebrews is addressing are guilty of. Okay, and I've only got about 30 seconds left. We might go over just a little bit. Um, but I, I would ask you this. In, in light of that comment, you do believe that mortal sins will absolutely... that prevent a person from repenting and coming back to Christ, even if they want to, they are going to hell. Is that correct? No, that's, that's not the Catholic view at all. The Catholic view is that mortal sins can be uh, forgiven um, through sincere repentance, which under ordinary circumstances involves um, the sacrament of reconciliation. Although God is, you know, uh, omnipotent, he can also... Uh, bring about absolution by other ways, but those are extraordinary circumstances. Okay. Uh, now let me ask you this. Um, yeah, I've got two more questions, and then we can we can go to the next part. In in section twenty twenty seven, it says, "Quote: Moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life, as well as necessary temporal goods." Unquote. How is how is that um, how is that how would you say that that's not meriting justification for yourself or for others? Um, okay. Again, first of all, remember, we in we distinguish between strict merit and condign merit. Um, the kind of merit that is being described here is condign merit, which is merit that God uh, chooses to um, bestow, not that he is not obligated to do so. Uh, it's in the context of relationship. Um, second of all, wait, I had a train of thought, I lost it. I don't know what my second point was. <laughs> okay, I'll wrap it up with this last question, then we can, we can move on. So, I want to ask you, do you believe that you must pay for your own sins until a satisfactory punishment has been met in God's eyes in this life, or in the temporal state of the next, according to, uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1472, where it says this, on the other hand, every sin, every venial, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures which must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state called purgatory. This purification frees one from what is called the temporal punishment of sin, unquote. Sorry, could you repeat the paragraph number? 1472. 1472. Yep. Um, okay. Okay, so... 
the we don't believe first of all that uh, we pay for our sins um, in the sense that you know um, we atone for our own sins to have them forgiven by God so in your you're drawing from the section on indulgences so and this is a section that is often misunderstood um, an indulgent Actually, if you read in the section right before that, it says an indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has been already forgiven. So the entire section that you just quoted in 1472 uh, is talking about somebody who has already had the uh, legal guilt of their sin forgiven, but still has a temporal punishment attached to that sin. Um, even if you're not Catholic, you have to agree because Hebrews 12 teaches it that any sin we commit does uh, result in some sort of temporal punishment or discipline, which is basically what the Catechism is getting at there. Okay, yeah, I'm sure we can draw more out on that as we go. Um, so with that, we're going to move on to the next portion of the debate, which is going to be rebuttal periods, five minutes each, and the clock is up. So you can take it away whenever you want. All right. Um, okay, I have a few notes that I wrote during your presentation. Um, first of all, I would like to thank Joshua for his um, um, presentation and for enunciating his view on justification. Uh, and I'm also appreciating the fact that uh, he just gave a plug for my academia.edu account. <laughs> uh, I, Yes, it is true that my that account contains essays written by me as a Protestant that I no longer hold to. I decided that uh, it would be better to leave them on there as sort of like a you know a way for me to personally make note of the things that I uh, uh, said in the past, and I'm happy to be held accountable to things that I've said in the past. Now, I should make note that I made a lengthy um, statement about historical theology in my presentation, and Joshua only briefly addresses it um, and does so to brush it aside. Um, now, I realize that as an adherent to Sola Scriptura, he does not really feel absolutely bound to patristic and medieval uh, consensus on justification. But you have to wonder, how could 1,500 years of exegesis of the New Testament miss something that is so fundamental to the gospel? And that being said, um, what would he say about some of the reformers themselves who, in fact, affirmed some of the things that uh, he would see as um, falling under the heading of false teaching on salvation? For example, making someone objectively righteous is not a Catholic distinctive. Many Lutheran theologians, such as Melanchthon and members of the Finnish school and Jordan Cooper, held the same view. Also, I have it on the authority of good Wesleyan friends that John Wesley also believed that God makes a sinner objectively righteous. Um, furthermore, uh, it's also held by the Reformed theologian Peter Mar Martyr Vermeule. So the idea of justification as making one righteous is more ecumenical uh, than um, my opponent would have would lead you to think. And now let's get to some of um, the stuff regarding St. Paul. So regarding Paul's argument in Galatians, so what is Paul actually getting at? If you read closely, it's actually the Judaizer position that he is trying to uh, counter. And the Judaizer position is that you must adhere to the Old Covenant to be saved. In Acts 15, verse 1, you're told that the Judaizers taught 
unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, unquote. And yet if you read Paul, one comes across a dilemma. In Romans 4, he cites Genesis 15, verse 6, as the moment of Abraham's justification. Yet we know that Abraham was called by God in Genesis verse 12, sorry, chapter 12. Hebrews 11 cites Abraham's response to God in Genesis 12 as an example of his faith, so presumably he was justified then. Furthermore, James presents Abraham as being justified when he um, obeyed God um, in Genesis 22. This would be problematic if one supposes that justification is a one-off event. If one supposes that justification is something that can be lost and regained, however, none of this is a problem. We can affirm that Abraham was justified in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 22. Catholic theology, um, like, harmonizes Paul and James seamlessly, which is more than what I can say about Protestant theology, which is why, um, as is well known, uh, Martin Luther wanted to remove James from the canon, calling it an epistle of straw. Now, finally, um, I want to also talk about David, and I alluded to this briefly in the rebuttal. He wants to say that your standing is something that can never change, as he says. But... You know, you already have Abraham as an example of how that could be problematic. And also, David um, is presented as justified when he repents of his adultery with Bathsheba. Um, was he not justified before that? Again, according to Catholic theology, it makes perfect sense because David could have been uh, could have lost his justification when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah and became justified again when he repented of that sin. And finally, um, I think there's a misunderstanding about mortal sin here. Mortal sin, um, if you repent of it before the end of your life, it can absolutely be forgiven by God in the context of the new covenant that is through the sacrament of reconciliation. In the old covenant, um, God, God's dealings with his people were different. So whatever means God chose to use back then uh, as his method of absolution, that is how David regained his justification after his mortal sin. All right. Okay, perfect. Let me... Uh, uh, let me get this back up here. Let's see, five minutes. Oh, I gotta switch the camera back to me. Sorry about that, folks. Okay. Um, so yeah, thanks again, Lewis. I really appreciate you coming on to have this debate. I think it's uh, I think it's been profitable. I think that we have um, clearly looked at some of of uh, the differences um, that we do have, and I think that. Um, the differences that we do have regarding justification need to be drawn out more. Um, in reference to some of the unity that you said we need to focus on, you said that uh, faith alone in reference to initial is, is in reference to initial justification, uh, but not ongoing justification. And I, I affirmed as well in my opening that we do have a lot of things in common, but when it comes to the doctrine of justification, we surely do have uh, an area of contention. Um, and that's sp specifically dealing with the doctrine of justification. Arguably, um, the whole point of this debate and the whole the the, the main difference between 
um, uh, Catholics and non-Catholics, uh, although neither <laughs> would be would be uh, completely monolithic in in everything that they do teach and believe. Um, but yeah, I I do think that faith alone is, uh, in my perspective, in reference to initial justification, but also um, not ongoing justification, but final and complete and once and for all justification, uh, because the cross of Christ literally paid for the sins, past, present, and future, of all mankind. Um, and that doesn't mean, I know that you would have to draw some conclusions to say, well, if they were literally paid for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future, that all men should be saved. And I would have to disagree with that because uh, the instrument by which um, one has the imputed righteousness of Christ um, and one is placed in Christ is not on the element of the atonement alone, but on the, the instrument of faith, which is um, primarily the whole subject of what we're dealing with tonight, where, where you said it is not about sola fide. And I would argue this is most definitely the subject of faith alone and not about how long faith alone lasts, uh, but about whether or not faith alone in cr the finished work of Christ alone is enough to save a person alone. So you, you said, are good works done in a state of grace or meritonious, meritorious? Uh, I, in, in my response is, any works done, whether in a state of grace or not, are never meritorious, um, or it is no longer a state of grace. I think Paul makes that abundantly clear um, in, in Galatians, where he says that um, whether it be by grace or whether it be by law, if it be by law, it's no more of grace, and grace ceases to be grace. So even if we say that our works are a means of grace, it's no longer a means of grace because it's by works. Uh, and I think that's something to be drawn out in this conversation to come to a conclusion. Uh, you, cite, you, you said that the patristics all taught the relationship of the works of works in conjunction with grace as meritorious for salvation and that salvation could be lost. But yet I think it, it's interesting you didn't quote anyone who held this view but just made the statement. I would contend that the patristics can be used in either direction, and their opinions are valuable, but that doesn't make them valid. Your opinion is, is valuable here tonight, but it's not valid, as in it's not true. So I would say that um, in, with a qualification of Ignatius in his epistle to the Magnesians, uh, where he says, May I enjoy you in all respects, if indeed I be worthy, for though I am not bound, I am bound, I am not worthy to be compared to any of you that are at liberty. I know that you are not puffed up, for you have Jesus Christ in yourselves, and all the more when I commend you, I know that you cherish modesty uh, of spirit as it is written, the righteous man is his own accuser. It is clear uh, that, that Ignatius is drawing a distinction between a righteous man being his own accuser by his works and, and the righteous man being declared righteous by the works of Christ. And the reason I can say that is because he goes on to say this, and all the more I commend you, I know that you cherish modesty of spirit, as is written, the righteous man is his own accuser. And he goes on and says, and again, declare thou first thine iniquities that thou mayest be justified. And again, when you shall have done all things that you are commanded, you say, we are unprofitable servants. For uh, that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. For the scripture says, God is merciful to me, a sinner. Uh, Therefore, uh, those great ones, Abraham and Job, styled themselves dust and ashes before God. And David says, Who am I before the Lord, O Lord, that thou glorified me hitherto? And Moses was the meekest of all men. I am a feeble voice and of a slow tongue. Be therefore also a humble spirit, 
that you may be exalted, for he that abaseth himself shall be exalted, and that he that exalteth himself shall be abased. Um, and I, I think there's other quotes that you could go on to say that, but I would sum it up this way. You say justification is a tricky subject and it has many refining points. I would say it's not tricky and it's final and established at the point of faith as the sole instrument of, for salvation and the finished work of Christ alone for all time to those who are in Christ. So with that, um, we'll uh, go on to, I think that we've got just open dialogue for, uh, let me see here, we've got, yeah, seven minutes of open dialogue, then we're going to go to our closing statements. Um, so let me get seven minutes up on the clock. Wait, how does this part work? Uh, it's just open dialogue. We can talk about whatever we want for seven minutes, or we can just go to opening statements. It doesn't matter to me, one way or the other. Like, pertaining to the debate subject, I mean. How does it relate to the subject? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I think that, obviously, it should be relevant to um, the debate topic, how is a man justified? Um, so we just ask each other questions and toss, toss around some different thoughts on it. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't um, say that we should just bring up anything. Sure. Um, I'm actually curious. I didn't say as much about this as I would have liked to, but in your view, what's the relationship between justification and the sacraments, like baptism yeah. and Eucharist? Yeah, I think that, um, so th there's seven sacraments in the Catholic Church, and um, um, I, I think if I was going to identify... Um, with anyone, it would have to be a Baptist, um, and and with the the Baptist, we we would believe that um, that we don't call them sacraments; we call them ordinances. And there's two ordinances. One would be um, the Lord's Supper and Communion, and then the the other ordinance would be baptism. Um, but ni neither of these ordinances would be necessary for salvation. So obviously, according to the Council of Trent, that would make me anathema uh, if I believe that. Um, and, and that's fine. I think well, that's a distinction to be drawn there. So, yeah, go ahead. Well, it's not just Trent that would declare you anathema at that point. Several of the reformers would as well. Luther uh, absolutely held that baptism is salvific and would condemn yeah. you for uh, denying that. Calvin, at certain points in, the, in his institutes, affirms that baptism saves as well. Yeah, I so think that... They, at that point, it becomes a... Um, I don't know. It, it's a much broader agreement on the topic versus it, like more modern evangelical reading of yeah so one one i would say that i think that one, i'm not reformed and and I, I i know that you um are, are making points from the reformation uh, as if i would adopt them but i i don't adopt them i disagree with it with calvin and luther on many points i think luther played uh, a, a massive role um in the anti-semitism that led to uh, everything that happened at, at the Holocaust. I think that viewpoint had a, had a huge point with driving out the Jews um, from Europe in the first place, but n that's neither here nor there. What I would say is, I think even uh, those in the Reformed camp may disagree with, with uh, your statement that um, Calvin and Luther uh, both believed in baptismal regeneration or the necessity of, of uh, the sacraments for um, for salvation, for justification or sanctification. I, but um, I, I'm not here to defend Calvin or Luther. I couldn't care less what they had to say about it. And, and the same argument goes for um, the, the patristics. I, I think there's value, like I said earlier, in what they had to say about any given specific subject, but I don't think uh, that, that that makes um, 
that that necessitates value as being true. Um, and, and I think that's something to be compared to Scripture. And uh, so if they did believe in baptismal regeneration, I think it's arguable that Calvin did, and I think it's arguable that Luther did, then I... It's, I'm I'm complete. I stand against them on that. So, um, but let me ask you uh, a, a question here, and this this is something that I, I think is um, could be drawn out. Where'd my questions go? Um, um, in in regard to the doctrine of, of justification and the relation of um, teaching with indulgence and and penance. When we talk about penance as being necessary for salvation, um, as as cooperating with grace to merit justification, I think is 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 the terminology that you would agree with. It says in um, in the the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Article 980, quote: "This the sacrament of penance is necessary for salvation for those who have fallen after baptism, just as baptism is necessary for salvation for those who have not yet been reborn." Um, can you descri- describe for me and for uh, our viewers now and the viewers who, who, will, who will view this later what the relationship is of, one, baptism to salvation, and two, um, the necessity of penance for those who have fallen after baptism? Sure. Um, with regards to baptism being salvific, I think it's one of those places where Scripture is fairly clear, like... 1 Peter 3, verse 21, explicitly says, Baptism now saves you. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more about reconciliation. But what does the rest of 1 Peter 3, 21 say? I mean, would you just would you just take a partial quote out of that? Yeah, so if you go a couple of verses back, he's talking about how um, Noah was saved in the ark. Mm-hmm. And they were, and the exact... And the ark or the water? Yeah, yeah. That while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water... Mm-hmm. Um, there is also an antitype which now saves us of baptism. So, so um, Peter's making a, what you call a type-antitype right. um, argument. And this is something that the New Testament authors frequently do. He says that um, Noah and his family being in the ark is a type of baptism. Um, so, do, like, are you saying that the water saved those who went through the water? Um... I mean, because that would be the antitype. Yeah. Um, again, types and antitypes are not like exact images of each other. Like, for example, Jesus is not a literal lamb. In fact, uh, uh, if you try to um, make the connection between the Old and the New Testament to um, like one-to-one, you run into the problem that the Old Testament uh, condemns human sacrifice. But be that as it may, I think Peter at this point is... Uh, going from the fact that water is present in both the type and the antitype. Um, but so the, the people... Who, I don't mean so to... The people c- the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the people who are in the ark um, symbolize the people who receive baptism. Mm, are you uh, sure about that? Yeah, that that's, uh, that is um, Peter's argument. So, no, I, I would disagree with you. It, I think that First Peter 3.21 is, without a doubt, giving you... Um, a type versus an anti-type, and and uh, the the type would be the ark is a type of Christ. The water is a type of judgment. I mean, if you're going to take the position that baptism is what places one into Christ, then I would say that you're you're wrong. And anybody that that water actually touched perished. 
Um, and, and take that for example, the only eight people who came out of those waters saved uh, were the eight who were in, in, the, in, the, in the ark. Um, and so I would say that the type and the anti-type um, is going to be the ark being a picture of Christ bringing us through um, the, the judgment of God on the world. And, and just so I can read the rest of verse 21, it says, The like figure whereunto baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he's showing you baptism saving us in the relationship of, is it, is it salvation through justification and being declared righteous before God, or is it of the answer of a good conscience towards God? So I think that would be a, another debate that we could draw out there uh, on 1 Peter 3.21, the relationship of bat baptism. And I interrupted you, but I, <laughs> I want to give you a chance to just give your full answer there. I know we're past time. Um, but. Well, I can... I could choose to continue on the baptism route, or I could also discuss the reconciliation route. I don't know if we'd have time for both. Which one would you rather? Um, let's do. Let's do. Well, I'd say since since we're on the baptism route, um, just finish up your thoughts right. on baptism, and then we can go to closing statements. Okay. So, um, it says baptism saves, and uh, I'm reading it in the New King James version, and the New King James uh, version does this really funky thing where. Uh, everything between not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God is put in parentheses. Um, um, I think that's an interesting thing because it's showing that there's a connection between baptism and the resurrection of Christ. Because, strictly speaking, um, you know, no sacrament has power in and of itself. Um, they only have power because by virtue of uh, Christ's resurrection and by virtue of the fact that God uh, attaches his promises to the sacraments so he promises that anyone who um, comes to the font of baptism um, believing that it will cleanse them will be saved and there is no contradiction between that and saying that our justification is by faith um, does that make sense yeah 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 I understand your position on that um and obviously I would um, I would have to disagree on that, and I, I don't want to draw it out any any more than than we need to. But um, if you want to, I mean, we can, or we can uh, go to closing statements and then open it up to questions to the audience if you want. Can we briefly discuss the reconciliation? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, the catechism uses the word sacrament of penance, but really, if in other places it's called the sacrament of reconciliation, which I think is more accurate because penance is just one part of uh, reconciliation and I would argue it's not even the most important part because what uh, reconciliation is is um, you examine your conscience and you um, uh, think about all the sins that you have committed um, since the last time you participated in sacrament of reconciliation and you go to the priest for confession so um, when you confess your sins to the priest, that is when the priest says the words of absolution, uh, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the biblical basis of that is uh, Jesus giving the disciples the authority to forgive sins. So you have John chapter 20, verse 20, uh, verses 22 to 23. Uh, and when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
We call it the sacrament of penance because it is customary for the priest to assign a penance after absolution, and it is expected that the person who just received absolution will perform the penance. But strictly speaking, it's not the penance itself that brings about uh, the forgiving of the sins. Rather, it's the declaration of absolution. Awesome. No, I appreciate you giving a clarification on that. Um, and it still doesn't persuade me because I, it, you know, there's nuances in the definitions or semantic range there or whatever you want to you want to say. But why don't we go to closing statements? We've got three minutes each, and then we can um, open up any questions for those who are viewing live, if if you have any. So, uh, for those of you who are viewing live right now, let me let me uh, say this: um, we've got six minutes for um, between the two of us, so three minutes each for closing statements. And um, then we'll open it up to you. If you would like to call in, you can do that. Uh, the number to call is 816-866-0025. And um, give us a call um, about, you know, whenever I'm wrapping up. And it, that should give you a chance to get on if you want to. So I'll put the number up on the screen, too, so you can uh, see it. But anyways, um, Lewis, I'll turn it over to you and go from there. Um. So, I before I uh, to begin with, I want to say that anybody who wants to understand what the Catholic view on soteriology is, uh, the nice thing about being Catholic is that these things are well defined. So I would encourage the listener to uh, read the Council of Trent for themselves. It's session six that deals with justification, and I would also um, encourage them to read the Catechism of the Catholic Church for themselves. The relevant sections are paragraphs 1987 to 2029. I would also encourage them to read the Joint Declaration on Just Doctrine of Justification. The reason why I mention this is not only so that you can hear what the Church uh, teaches in her own words, but you can also be disabused of any um, uh, misconceptions that you may have about what the Catholic Church teaches, because there are all sorts of weird... Um, um, misconceptions flying around about what um, Catholicism actually says about salvation. We've been falsely accused of semi-Pelagianism, of denying the necessity of grace or the sufficiency thereof. Um, you know, we've been accused of seeing purgatory as a means of salvation, even though we teach that uh, everyone in purgatory is a means of grace. Uh, I think it's important to uh, lay all of those uh, misconceptions aside. It's also good to read the um, um, scriptures closely and not to have come in with any like preconceived notions of what they teach. Um, I think that there are many passages in scripture, such as Romans 2, James 2, um, etc., that uh, at face value, they sound like um, they um, teach the Catholic viewpoint more than the Protestant viewpoint. That's not meaning automatically that the Catholic viewpoint is the correct one, but that means that there is a face value um, plausibility to it. And Catholics have been reading these same scriptures for just as long as Protestants, if not longer. And we know what they say. And I would argue that um, it, there are certain areas in the text, uh, which I brought out in my opening presentation, that Protestant would have trouble explaining uh, those passages uh, in light of their soteriology, but a Catholic understanding um, um, brings all of them together into a seamless whole. 
and that's all of it. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Lewis. I'm going to put the timer up here for me, and then I'll go from there. So, okay, yeah, I would like to uh, thank Lewis for once again coming on and uh, being willing to debate the subject of justification. Um, I know that this has got to be something that's really close and dear and and uh, um, sensitive to your own heart, uh, just because of uh, the journey that you've had over the past year and a half, um, believing what I believe uh, about salvation. Um, and I would encourage any of you who are uh, really listening to the subject matter of this debate um, to consider what the what the um, what it is that we're describing as the real differences. And let me summarize it to you this way. Um, and and we can wrap it up and, and go to questions. But Catholicism teaches that justification is God's act of making man righteous by good works and obedience. Uh, scripture teaches that justification is God's act of declaring a sinner righteous by faith. C uh, Catholicism teaches infused sanctifying grace through the sacraments makes the believer acceptable to God. Scripture teaches that Christ's imputed righteousness makes the believer acceptable to God. Catholicism teaches justification is achieved by faith plus good works. Scripture teaches justification is received by faith alone. Catholicism teaches justification is granted to the sinner when he is actually made just. Scripture teaches justification enables God to see the sinner as if he were just. Catholicism teaches that uh, justification can be increased by receiving more sacraments. Scripture teaches justification cannot increase since the ground is the perfect righteousness of Christ. Catholicism teaches justification is affected by sin. Scripture teaches justification is a permanent verdict and is not affected by sin. Catholicism teaches final justification is not determined until death. Scripture teaches that justification comes at the moment of faith in Jesus Christ. Catholicism teaches the ground of justification is the righteousness of the person. And Scripture teaches the ground of justification is the righteousness of Christ. And finally, two more points. Catholicism teaches sanctification and justification are so similar that they both work together to merit, uh, to merit final salvation. Scripture would teach justification precedes sanctification, and sanctification is something that we should do, but not of a necessity that it affects our salvation. Finally, Catholicism teaches an emphasis is on the sacraments. Scripture teaches the emphasis is on God's verdict. Uh, Lewis summarized in his, in his conclusion that there are, are such vast differences in and the, uh, the relationship of faith and works to what James describes in James 2 and what Romans describes in Romans 2 with Romans 4. And I'll, I'll wrap up my conclusion here where James says this. He says, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man says he has faith and has not works, can that faith save him? Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead, being alone. That's the faith he just described. Yea, a man may say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. He's showing there the description of the relationship of a dead faith with works versus a live faith with works. And uh, he show, he's describing in verse 18, Yea, a man say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And he goes on to say, um, in, in verse 24, you see then how 
that by works a man is justified and not by faith only, we've got to take into context of any passage that Catholicism would teach the necessity of works for salvation must be considered in what is uh, being spoken about within the context where you can see that James is describing the relationship of works with a live faith and not the necessity of works to make faith alive. Um, So with that, guys, I would wrap up uh, my conclusion and show that uh, if your faith is not in the finished work of Jesus Christ in your preaching, um, the necessity of works to complete your faith and thereby complete your final justification that you are in fact believing and teaching a different gospel altogether, which Paul is describing in Galatians 3. Um, my time is up here. If we have any questions from the audience, you can call in 816-866-0025. Um, we've only got three people viewing live right now, and that's totally fine. Um, if you want to send in any questions, you can do that as well. Um, and we don't have any, so we might just wrap it up and go from there. But uh, anyways, Lewis, let me put you back on the screen. And I've got to say, dude, I really appreciate you coming on. We do have a question here um, from Marissa Gaston. hope I'm pronouncing your name right, but you say this. Uh, I want to put that on the screen as well so you guys can see it. How would Lewis interpret Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and um, I think you said 10 in your opening statement and reconcile it with what Catholicism teaches about the relationship of, I'm reading into this, grace and works. So, again, this is, if you begin in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, um, and I'm quoting the um, RSV, He made you alive when you were dead, through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked on the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So I want to emphasize that this is referring to uh, God making the believer spiritually alive when they were formerly dead. Um, and of course, that is um, repeated in verse 5. Um, Even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us, he made us alive together in Christ. And verse 6, raised up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, immediately, this tells us what um, point in uh, what point of salvation Paul is referring to here. It is that point where we move from a spa- state of spiritual deadness to a state of spiritual life. And that is, of course, what in Catholicism we refer to as uh, initial justification and as I mentioned in my opening statement we do affirm that your initial justification takes place by faith alone so when Paul says in verse 8 for by grace you've been saved through faith this is not your doing it is the gift of God um, that is exactly the same thing that I just said that uh, it is uh, by grace through faith that you move from that state of spiritual deadness to spiritual life and of course as I mentioned before you can't quote verses 8 and 9 and not also quote verse 10 which says for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so uh, good works are the telos if you will um, of faith that is the reason why we are granted faith so that that faith would produce those works Okay, yeah, and let me, we've got another question that's come in. Um, let me um, give, I'd like to give my answer on that as well so we can um, 
yeah, we can have both sides to it. But I would say this, if you start in verse 1, he says, uh, and you has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. So obviously, right off the bat, he's talking to Christians. You can see that. He's talking to Christians. Um, and, and even in, in chapter 1, when you, when you see the references to predestination, um, one thing that Lewis has not changed is his, is his, um, from his conversion from reformedom to Catholicism would be his view on predestination, although he would say God has predestinated now uh, people to be um, given the amount of actual initial grace in order to receive um, initial justification when before he would believe that God has predestined um, and those who he chose before the foundation of the world to be predestined to become sons of God um, to final justification. So that would be a major point of, of difference. But I would say both camps are wrong, which is why I said in my opening statement, Lewis, you've traded one um, distortion of the gospel for an altogether um, perversion of the gospel when it comes to uh, the doctrine of justification. I would say this. Paul is describing in Ephesians chapter 1 those who are already in Christ, and he's describing the promises for those who are in Christ, and you've been pre predestined to the adoption of your body. So he's not talking, talking about the adoption to get saved. He's talking about the adoption of your regenerated body, which is described in Romans chapter 8 um, in the golden chain of redemption, which is uh, used as a proof text for both sides um, to describe predestination to be saved. So I would say you're airing both sides on that point. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, when he describes the relationship of grace and works in, in verses 8 through 10, I would agree with you. You've got to look at verse 10 there. Um, but one difference that I'm going to point out that you didn't is that he ordained that we should walk in them. That does not mean that um, um, the ordination of us being... Um, being necessitated for us to walk in them in order to keep salvation, which I think is being read into the text and needs to be talked out, uh, walked out of the text, because um, in virtue, guys, um, Ephesians chapter 2 shows us in verse 6 that you also didn't read, and he's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, that hasn't happened yet. That hasn't happened yet, but what 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 it's showing is, is um, the absolute promise that God sees in the future as 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 good as right now. Um, he sees us seated in heavenly places right now because we are in Christ, and that's where Christ is seated. Now, we're not there yet, but we've got the promise that we will be there at a later date. But anyways, I don't want to take any more time than I have. Uh, Mark Hyam says this, Lewis, uh, is it possible for you to lose your salvation in Roman Catholicism? Are you keeping enough good works to keep yourself saved? I think that's a... A valid question. So, Lewis, how would you answer that? Well, um, yes, Catholicism does teach that salvation can be lost through mortal sin. Um, and I think that there's a bit of a, a misconstrual of what exactly it means to say you're doing enough good works to stay saved. Because, um, like, the kind of... How do I say this? Uh, when we fail to do good works, then that is a sin of um, omission. Um, I'm not entirely clear on whether a sin of omission counts as a mortal or a venial sin. Um, as far as I know, um, unless you're, unless someone is, um, you know, being murdered and you deliberately avoid helping them to avoid getting murdered, 
think uh, the sin of omission only counts as a venial sin. So strictly speaking, it would not uh, send you to hell. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, um, let me give my take on that. In First in John 5, which is going to be the same reference that Lewis gave in, his, in one of the, the articles that I mentioned in my opening, uh, which you can get on academia.edu, <laughs> another plug for it, go check it out. Um, Lewis says this, uh, before he converted to Catholicism, he references the, uh, this verse here. If we receive the witness of men, uh, I, would, I would compare that we're, we're, we're talking about the witness of men when we're talking about uh, Roman Catholicism and saying that you can lose your salvation and, and, and all of these things. He says, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of, of his Son. He that believes on the Son of God has the witness in himself. He that uh, he that believes not God has made him a liar because he believes not the record that God gave of his son. And this is that record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He that has the son of, has life, and he that has not the son of God has not life. These things have I written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, I would say this now. Obviously, Lewis would say, yeah, I totally agree with that. As a Catholic, we believe that. We believe that. What it doesn't teach you is that you can reject Christ and therefore pull yourself out of Christ and lose the promise of eternal life. Now, what I would say to that is um, in First Timothy, Second uh, Timothy 4, where Lewis would have to prove to us that even if we deny him, he cannot de deny himself. You can deny Christ like Peter did and never lose your salvation. As a Christian, I believe that. Because the doctrine of eternal security is, is placed in the finished work of Christ and not your ongoing works to keep you in Christ. And fundamentally, I think that's the differences between what you've heard here tonight and what I've talked about with justification and what Lewis has talked about regarding justification. So yeah, I know you want to say something there, Lewis. I realize this is um, not my turn to ask questions, but... I, I'm curious. Can you clarify that? You, you, I, I may have misunderstood about you, but did you say that a person can deny Christ and he is still um, saved by Christ? I, I think that yeah. I mean, it says it in in Second Timothy four that even if we deny him, and I'm I'm sure that you'll go to Matthew um, as well, where where um, he'll deny you before the Father. Um, but but I'm showing you the the New Testament principle that. Even if we deny him, he cannot deny himself because, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, he's not looking at us uh, at the judgment. He's looking at us in Christ. So when, when we talk about him not being able to deny himself, that's exactly what we're talking about. The righteousness of the Christian is literally the righteousness of Christ. And even if we deny him, he's not, he's not rejecting us at the judgment seat of Christ. He's, he's accepting us in Christ because he sees us in Christ. And that can never be taken away. So, um, I'm just thinking about the praxis of this. So, if someone is a Christian and they, let's say, become an atheist, would you try to win them back to Christianity? Or would you say, oh, even though he's an atheist, he's still saved? See, and this is, this is the difficulty of, of, of what we're talking about um, and, and what James is describing. I, I, I mean, Lewis, let's be honest, man. I can't look at your heart. You can't look at mine. I would say that... Um, I, w I would say that when Paul talks about apostasy, I'd say that when you went to the Roman Catholic Church, and I mean this it, it, with as, as much grace as I can, um, that, that that is apostasy. 
Um, and, and when we talk about who is saved and, and who's not, the, the Calvinist, and this is what you would have believed before, would say, well, they came out from among us because they were never of us. I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that I can say whether or not someone is or isn't saved based off of what their, what their works are alone. What I do believe is that if I'm looking at the works of someone, I can, I can trust what James describes and see if they have a faith that's alive or not based off of their works. And if I look at an atheist, like the atheist who I'm going to debate in two weeks, Randy Krakowski, on the morality of God who claims that he, teached, he taught and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ for 17 years, and when he discovered the the problem of theodicy that he left christianity because he cannot believe in a god who is both good and evil uh, would obviously be the claim of the atheist or the agnostic um that he left christianity and that he's not a christian he won't stand before the judgment of god because there is no god i don't know what to do with that i i know that god looks at the heart of someone like that and and, and if that promise is true let God be true and every man a liar. Let that promise stand and whether I can work it out in my own own heart, my own mind, that's 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 my issue to work that out. But that's not God's issue for me to come and to reconcile that and give you a, an explanation that's satisfactory to your own heart. I, I just don't know how to deal with that exactly. Okay. Um, Any more questions? Yeah, let's see. <coughs> Okay. No, I think I think that's it. Um, so that'll be a wrap, man. I really do appreciate you coming on, and uh, for the sake of the benefit of why I think this is important, um, is obviously going to be the same motive for both of us. It's not just to win a debate. I don't think that's your goal. I don't think that's my goal. I think the goal is to um, um, portray what we believe is the gospel of Jesus Christ and hopefully for anyone who listens this to hear it and to accept Christ as their personal savior and to get saved. So um, that's my final word I'll take. I want to give you the last word and then I'm going to cut to uh, my closing scene and go from there. Or you did closing statements. Oh, we did. I just wanted to see if you had a final if a final thought. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if uh, not, that's cool. Uh, yeah, well, you know, all I have to say is uh, if anyone's interested in um, following my writings, I blog on eacanada.wordpress.com. Um, I don't, like, most of what I've been writing recently are just um, commentaries on the uh, scripture readings from the uh, Sunday readings at the Mass. Um, however, once in a while, I will um, review books and debates, and if there's a topic that is really pressing and I need people need to address it, I'm going to write an article on it. So yeah, uh, be sure to check that out. My most recent um, the, um, article that people might be interested in is um, it's again on the topic of Christian Muslim apologetics. It's a uh, I was at a debate between Shabir Ali and John Tor, debating the resurrection. So th my commentary and review of that debate is on my website. Awesome, yeah. cool. That'll work, man. Thanks again for coming on. Um, I. I wish you the best, Lewis, and um, I know that uh, it's been quite a journey for you, so I pray for you. And um, with that said, I hope you have uh, a good evening and go Chiefs because we are in the Super Bowl. And um, The Superb Owl. It's a what? Right? The Superb Owl. The Superb Owl, dude. Yeah, that's good. I've never heard that. So, um, it's a, it's yeah. 
What does that mean? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, because it's super bold, there's no like space in between it. So you can put the space between super and bold, or you could put the space between superb and owl. Nice, dude. I haven't I heard that. I choose to interpret it as the latter. That's good. That's good. That's good. All right, man. Well, have a good night. We'll um, hopefully catch up with with you sometime soon. So, sure. Talk God to you bless. soon. Good weekend. You too. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to cut to my closing scene here and give you an update on what to expect in the next couple of weeks. So, um, as I said earlier, we have got um, I've got a debate that's coming up, and I'll, I'll have to give you the dates as it comes. But um, I, I just can't remember off the top of my head what it is. Randy Krakowski, we're going to be debating um, the origin of morality. Uh, then me and Matt Slick are going to debate uh, limited atonement. Um, and I've got another debate. I can't remember what that is, but stay tuned because we're going to, I'm going to send you some updates as it, as they come. But anyways, yeah, do please re rate, like, and share this with, um, those who you think would find it beneficial. Always, as always, you can reach out to me at talkingchristianityapologetics at gmail.com, where you can reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, basically, uh, any social media platform that you want to. Um, and you can call and leave a voicemail if you need to as well, and we can address that at some point in a later broadcast, 816-866-0025. All right, well, I uh, hope that's a blessing, guys, uh, the doctrine of justification from the Catholic perspective and from my perspective, uh, which I believe is the biblical perspective. One shows the necessity of, of works and sacraments in conjunction with grace. The other teaches grace alone 100% and the imputed righteousness of Christ alone to get you to heaven. All right, guys. Uh, love you. God bless. And we'll talk to you soon. Go Chiefs.